Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. Keep your head up, marching on. Don't let nothing stand in your way. Hello there, warrior. I'm your host, Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a wisdom sharing platform for all people impacted by an eating disorder. Recovery Warriors provides resources and support to heal your relationship to food, body, mind, and soul. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it is worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today is a five things feature where we explore and break down a recovery related topic into five digestible ideas so you can get more recovery wisdom in less time. Today's topic is five recovery insights from an emotional eating expert with special guest, Mary Ann Cohen. She has many, many decades of experience as a therapist, helping people heal from food and body issues. And she's also known for coining the term emotional eating back in 1982. Marianne is a licensed clinical social worker and the director at the New York Center for Eating Disorders. And she's the author of three books titled Treating the Eating Disorder Self, Lasagna for Lunch, and French Toast for Breakfast. And before we dive into this conversation with Marianne and these five brilliant insights she has to share, I want to say thank you to Christy for filling out the listener survey. She asked for ways to continue to move forward in recovery and not become complacent. And today's show will cover this, particularly when it comes to moving beyond the food to further healing, to getting to these deeper root issues. And given recovery is a journey that happens one step at a time, we will continue to light the way for you as you move forward in your recovery. And dear listener, if you want to share your feedback with us, take a few minutes and fill out the listener survey. You can find the link in the episode notes below. And when you fill out the survey, you also get entered into a raffle for a free recovery strategy session with me. And you also help us understand your needs so we can serve you better with our shows in the future. Now, let's have Marianne Cohen tell you a bit more about her personal and professional experience with eating disorders and emotional eating. I had dealt with my own compulsive overeating and became very aware that it was triggered by emotional stuff. And I began analyzing what emotional triggers were my particular triggers. And then as I developed more expertise in the field, I decided to get more training. And I realized that people eat for emotional reasons or starve for emotional reasons or purge for emotional reasons. That although there are biological underpinnings, although there are neurological underpinnings, Emotions seem to be the strongest trigger because when we think about it, food is the cheapest, most available, mood-altering substance on the market. And it is mood-altering. Purging is mood-altering. Binging is mood-altering. Starving is mood-altering. And I began to see when I started my practice that patients were turning away to from food or toward food 
to help them solve their emotional problems of living. And of course, making an effort to try to solve your problems is a healthy intention. But food cannot be the only game in town because it only works temporarily. So now we have to help people find additional ways of comforting, soothing, dealing with anger, dealing with guilt, dealing with sexuality that don't involve detouring through their relationship with food. Mary Ann really knows her stuff when it comes to eating disorders and emotional eating. Now let's get into five recovery insights with an emotional eating expert. Number one, recognize the role of deprivation. Deprivation and scarcity can play a big part in eating disorders. Whether you're feeling deprived of food, love, or intimacy, you can subconsciously use disorder behaviors as an attempt to compensate for deprivation. Marianne and I discussed deprivation further. The binge eater generally feels deprived. And they try to compensate and make it up to themselves with eating and food. By the way, a binge eater could also have a background of being overly indulged by their parents. And they wind up internalizing that, pro- that pattern of overindulging. And this is the way, you know, food is love. But most binge eaters that I see have aspects of deprivation in their life. And for them, as well as the other emotional eaters that we'll talk about, bulimics, anorexics, trusting food has become safer than trusting people. Loving food has become safer than loving people. Food never leaves you. Food never dies. Food never neglects you. Food never abuses you. It is the only relationship where we get to say when, where, and how much. No other person responds to our needs as elegantly and beautifully as food. So that knowing that helps us appreciate why people become committed to their relationship with food. If you have experiences which you conclude that you cannot trust intimacy, that you cannot trust connections with people, then the food becomes your pseudo lover, parent, companion. And like you say, it's so easy to get food. I remember when I was seven, I lived behind a 7-Eleven and I would zone their shelves. I would move their cans and like dust for them for day old donuts. And I would eat like seven donuts a day. And it was just so easy for me to go get my donuts, get my right. food. And, and, and why did you eat the, uh, the older donuts? Why not? Yeah, why not? No, exactly. <laughs> that would have been yeah, I, <laughs> but, I, I had a bulimic patient who would uh, steal food from the, uh, the bodegas that we have here in Brooklyn. And when she no longer was bulimic and she had a better relationship with food, she had this fantasy that they were having a convention and trying to figure out why their profits were up because she was no longer stealing so much food off the shelves. Is that common? I also stole food when I was bulimic. Is that a common bulimic t- thing to do? Well, yeah, yeah. But I stole food from my mother's kitchen. <laughs> 
I had great techniques and um, because there wasn't enough food in my hands. Well, that's the thing. So if your mom wasn't really caring for herself or providing the nourishment that she needed, did that create a disconnect? I had a similar story. Did that create a disconnect in your mind where you felt like food wasn't available and how did that affect your relationship? And Well, it affected my relationship with one word, shame. Because you wanted it. It wasn't available. And the message I was getting from my mother is what I'm giving you should be enough. Mm. And maybe that's the message that a lot of compulsive overeaters get. It should be enough. Whatever you're getting in this family, in this relationship should be enough. But when you secretly think or feel it's not enough, you find ways to compensate, which again is a healthy intention. We really have to say that message because trying to take care of yourself and trying to provide abundance is a healthy intention, right? Yeah. But shame, I mean, shame is the underpinning of all emotional eating. The anorexic has shame and also the binge eater has shame. I worked with a woman who lived alone and she would hide her food in the hamper. She lived alone. So she didn't have anybody to scold her or yell at her when she opened the refrigerator. And yet she hid, because this was a pattern from childhood, she hid the food in the bathroom clothes hamper. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the shame, the secrecy, who she felt she was hiding from never was very clear, but we figured out it was the inner mother who was scolding her for needing so much. And so progress for her was being able to binge, not from the clothes hamper. And that was progress. Keep it in the refrigerator and binge because that implies that you're giving yourself some permission for the binge. Giving yourself permission is a valuable part of the recovery process because it involves coming out of hiding, no longer repressing your desires or needs. And while it may seem counterintuitive to give yourself permission to binge, like in the example Marianne shared, it's important to remember that what we resist persists. Giving yourself permission creates more consciousness to what you are doing, and from here, you have greater capacity to make changes or modify your behaviors. As Marianne pointed out, our behaviors are driven by much deeper emotions. Trusting food can feel safer than trusting people. Loving food can feel safer than loving people. Food never leaves. Food never dies. Food never neglects. Food never abuses. Food never criticizes us. Food is the only relationship where we get to say when, where, and how much. And food responds to our needs without question which is why food commonly serves as a proxy or safer substitute for love, intimacy, and commitment. Untangling your emotions from food, recognizing your underlying unmet needs, and giving yourself permission to step away from deprivation in all of its forms is an important step in the recovery process. Now, let's move on to our next recovery insight from an emotional eating expert. Number two, eating disorders affect intimacy and sex. An overarching topic in my discussion with Marianne was intimacy and sex. Eating disorders and body image struggles play a big role in the fear of both emotional and physical intimacy. Here's what Marianne shared about eating disorders, intimacy, and sex. Sexual intimacy 
is the opposite of emotional eating. Sexual intimacy is about surrendering, relaxing, sharing, and letting go. Emotional eating is about controlling, rigidity, fear, and isolation. No amount of cookies, diets, throwing up, or starving can truly satisfy sexual longings. So in order to heal eating problems, we need to reconnect our physical hunger with our stomachs and our sexual hunger with the appropriate organs. <laughs> so for everybody, I want to say food and sex have a lot in common. They're about hunger, desire. And if you are not on good speaking terms with allowing yourself to have desire and hunger, then this goes underground. And this is a topic that I feel very passionate about because my life's work is not just to help women with eating disorders, but to help women fully embrace their hearts, their bodies, their loves, their own unique peculiarities. So helping people embrace the full spectrum of love, life, and laughter is my life's work. So sexuality and helping emotional eaters be able to realize that their hungers are beautiful, legitimate, and that they need to find a way of expressing themselves that is very congruent to how their heart is telling them that they legitimately feel. Now, food is easier because you don't have to deal with another person. Sex can be harder because now we're talking about intimacy. And if you come to the life experience of feeling that people cannot be trusted with your intimacy, then all of that goes underground. Do you think that why, that's why it makes people hard to, like they kind of can build walls around themselves to not have to experience that vulnerability and that intimacy? Absolutely. As a way of saying, back off, don't come near me. I don't want human nurturing. I don't want sex. Away with you. I'm fat. I, I'm ugly and I hate myself. This is the mantra of so many emotional eaters. I'm fat. I'm ugly and I hate myself. Mm -hmm. So let me turn it all inward. It's so important to understand these patterns and, and why it's happening. Now, with, with this idea around sex, I, in the needs, expression of needs, you know, I've found there's a documentary I watched about women and orgasms, and we actually are wired completely different than men, no surprise, like in, in the terms of like how we get pleasure and how we can actually climax. And the, there's just this common, you know, misconception of the G-spot, and you just got to hit the G-spot, and you can't, that's like how you find an orgasm. Do you find that a lot of women that you work with in, in kind of repressing the, their needs, that they don't allow themselves to reach that state of ecstasy by asserting themselves and what it takes to get there? I think that it causes shame that women feel that they're the only ones who can orgasm the way they need to orgasm. There is, um, you know, so much hype in the media about how you look really is what makes you sexy. 
And I remember the actress Kate Upton quoted as saying, if you look like you're having a good time, that's sexy. Mm -hmm. Not if you're having a good time, but if you look like you're having a good time. So that's one step removed from claiming your body, your sexuality, your orgasms. And just like everyone's eating problem is unique as a fingerprint, everyone's sexuality and what gives them the utmost pleasure is unique as a fingerprint. So being able to identify what you need, what you want, and then asking for it, these are two tasks that a woman must uh, figure out for herself. Obviously, identifying means getting to know your body, exploring your body, having a relationship with your body. And then what you do with that information in terms of bringing it to your partner. And, you know, I have to say the word shame again, because I think many women are ashamed. Mm -hmm. So... What's interesting is that I had a man come to me. He came from bulimia, married man. And he said, I want to talk about something my, my wife said. She said to me, my vagina is ugly. And he said, how could a woman feel that way? I get so much pleasure from her vagina. Plus, we've had four children. And I mean, her vagina has been fruitful and multiplying. <laughs> This was a woman who thought her vagina was ugly. And it made me really want to do a lot of work on helping women arrive at self-acceptance through their own unique expression of sexual needs, sexual communication, sexual response. I mean, there was nothing ugly about this woman's vagina, according to her husband, but for her it was. And that was tragically sad. The intimate parts of our body are no exception to body image struggles. But remember, there is so much variance in our bodies that is to be celebrated. Our sexuality is as unique as our fingerprints. There's no right or wrong way to look or appear anywhere on your body. There's nothing wrong with owning your desires and experiencing pleasure. In fact, when we suppress our desires, food becomes an outlet to alleviate our longing. Now, let's move on to our third recovery insight from an emotional eating expert. Number three, food issues distract from something deeper. Eating disorders are as much about the food as they are not about the food. It's common to use eating disorder behaviors in an attempt to fill a need that isn't being met or to cope with pain, whether it's physical or emotional pain, in any underlying trauma. Marianne Cohen talked about this further. I often say to people, let's translate your body image distress into feeling language. I have a woman I'm working with now. She feels fat. Every second of the day. But we're trying to get to why. And what's coming out is very profound deprivation in her marriage, rage in her marriage. And that's much more dangerous than feeling, I'm fat, I, I'm ugly, and I hate myself. And then I have one problem. 
it's not my marriage. It's not my children. It's not my father. It's not nobody. It's my problem of fat and eating. And, and so it's a, a very neatly constructed red herring because all emotional distress gets triggered and crystal, not triggered, but crystallized into this one thing. I'm fat, I'm ugly, and I need to lose weight. And women have such allegiance to that mantra. And so I try to help them. And one of the ways I try to help them translate into feeling language is I say, let's pretend that in today's session, we completely have healed your eating problem. What is the next issue that's going to come up for you? And guess what? <laughs> what the next issue is. And this woman said, divorcing my husband? So that's dangerous, right? It's easier to feel fat than thinking about divorcing your husband and everything that means. But we got a laugh out of it because she was able to open the path to acknowledging that behind her distress, they were real confusing and conflicting feelings. So, of course, nothing gets healed because if everything is subterfuge under the compulsive overeating in her case, the rage, the disappointment, the frustration, and the demand that things change has all gone underground. So it's so exciting. I feel like a United Nations instant translator. You tell me about your emotional eating problems, and I'll tell you together with our sessions what's going on in your heart and how to translate your issues into your heart. Marianne has a true gift for translating emotional eating problems into what's going on deeper in our hearts. Can you think of deeper things that might be going on for you? Now remember the exercise that Marianne shared from her therapy session. Imagine you have completely healed your eating problem. Pretend that you no longer have an eating disorder. What is the next issue that's going to come up for you? Reflect on this and see how you may be using food to distract you from this issue. Now to our fourth recovery insight from an emotional eating expert. Number four, eating disorders keep you from connection. Walls come up when you're living with an eating disorder. Sometimes this is intentional and conscious. Sometimes it's completely unconscious and outside of our awareness. Either way, these walls keep you from connection, intimacy, and bonding in human relationships. Marianne shared a story about a client she worked with who struggled with this. This was a girl who was never listened to by her mother in particular. Her feelings were dismissed. So you learn to dismiss your feelings. You learn to dismiss or not trust someone else coming in a kind and generous way to you. Her mother was not kind and generous. And this was her lifestyle. But of course, as we illuminate, we're able to illuminate this, then she becomes more aware. Mm -hmm. And awareness is such an important first step. It's not the only step. We have to take our awareness and then couple it with action. So in her case, the action would be to observe when she would swat people away. And it became very interesting. 
And so we deepened our understanding together. And it, it turned out to be a very fruitful relationship between her and me. And she grew and developed and got married, had a child, moved away. And we laugh, we love, we hate, we're passionate, we're expressive. And I'm just as expressive as uh, I can be because my role is to enliven somebody. Mm -hmm. So... So many people feel dead inside, and my role is to enliven them. So that's what I do. So what's a way to enliven someone who's really struggling with loneliness, and they've created these routines around them where they're isolating, they're you know, spending their Friday night at home, binging, canceled plans maybe, or no one's calling them because their friends have now been kind of trained to not call them because they always flake or say no. Mm-hmm. So what, what can someone do at that point to work with this intense emptiness that they feel, which they often use food to, to cope with? Right. I like your word, emptiness. That's really descriptive of what people go through. I don't know that there's one simple answer to that very complex question, but I think how people get filled up is through an empathic attachment. And that's where the therapy comes in because I do try to empathically tune in to each person. And when you feel better understood, then you can integrate the therapist's curiosity about you into your life and get more curious about your own self. And I have another patient who's a binge eater who stays home on the weekends and watches movies and is very afraid to go out. And she's afraid of people. And and food is more comforting. And we've been realizing that she's afraid of people. This is I've never had someone like this. It's very interesting. She never knew what her mother was thinking. Her mother was a kind of stoic soldier who always did the right thing, who always took care of everybody. But my patient never knew what her mother was thinking. And that's how we get in line. And we look at our mother's face and we see our mothers go, ugh, I'm disgusted with you, or you're the cutest thing, good job. When we see the dynamic illumination of our mother's face, we feel illuminated. So that's where my role comes in. I'm a dynamic, illuminated face. And this girl was so interesting because she didn't know what she felt. She was always second-guessing herself. And so she'd go to her mother and and she'd say to her mother, so do you think I should go on this trip with my friends? And the mother would go, well, do whatever you want. But she didn't know what she wanted. And she never knew what her mother wanted because her mother didn't ever express what she wanted. So the process, this is about food, but it's not about food. I work with people with emotional eating problems. I really do talk about food. It doesn't seem so in our conversation today. Really talk about food and what you do with food and your relationship with food. But I also talk about the emotional emptiness, to use your word, that and where it comes from. And the fear that people have of getting filled up with human relationships, which are unpredictable. Food is predictable. Mm -hmm. Food is available. 
human nurturing is unpredictable. It's inconsistent. But when it's good, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like quality human connection. Relying on food to fill that may feel safe or consistent, but at what cost? Connecting with others can be scary. It involves emotional risk and vulnerability, but the rewards are so great. Embracing the risk and leaning into connection can do so much to help you move forward in recovery. Now for our final recovery insight from an emotional eating expert. Number five, food and body struggles can be generational. There are many complex social, environmental, and genetic factors that go into developing an eating disorder. One thing to consider is the role that disordered eating has played in the generations before you. Then you can use that knowledge to take action for change. Marianne Cohen explains further. Be aware of your story. First of all, awareness. Couple it with action. A lot of patients come to me and they say I was in therapy before. I got a lot of awareness, but nothing changed. Awareness plus action equals result. Awareness must be coupled with action. It's not enough to know my mother deprived me and therefore I continue to eat, throw up, take laxatives. My mother hated her body. She passed that on to me. It's not enough. Now what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. So that is unique to each person, what you're going to do about it. I've also been very interested lately now that I'm older, the multi-generational transmission of ideas about women and how it's not just our story, but it's our mother's story and our grandmother's story. I've done a lot of thinking lately about how my mother's deprivation of me with food was very much based on what happened in her life. That was very much based on what happened in her mother's life. And so I'm old enough now to see granddaughters of granddaughters who are the fourth generation of women to have eating problems. So to be able to see that it's not just our story and we're not just in a vacuum, but we have a historical context can give very deep meaning because it's our journey, but it's our journey as a more evolved manifestation of some of the pains and hurts that maybe the people we loved had gone through. And, you know, I see this most specifically when I work with children or grandchildren, the Holocaust survivors, and the relationship to food and deprivation was not psychological. It was horrific. And how they have evolved to be able to work that through or be stuck. So it's not just our stories. And it's not just our stories historically. It's our stories as women. We are on a collective journey. Use the knowledge of the past to build a better future for yourself and for generations to come. You can be the one to break the chain of destructive food and body patterns in your family line. So these are five recovery insights from an emotional eating expert. Thank you to Marianne Cohen for speaking with me and sharing her wisdom with us today. To review, our five insights are, one, recognize the role of deprivation. Two, eating disorders affect intimacy and sex. Three, food issues distract from something deeper. Four, eating disorders keep you from connection. And five, food and body struggles can be generational. 
Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion like the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this warrior. Warrior.